If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis 40 is your finding, uh, your place there in God's Word. I want to welcome all those who are worshiping with us online. We are so grateful uh, that you are joining us this morning. Also want to welcome the venue service meeting with us right down the hall. Uh, Reach Church DeSoto is joining us this morning. So excited what God is doing there. Uh, keep your ears open, your eyes peeled. There's some great outreach events going to be occurring at Reach Church DeSoto in the coming weeks as we lead up to Easter. So be ready to go out there and help Pastor Ryan, Pastor Josh as we serve in that community and try to reach as many people as we can with the gospel. And also this morning, Fellowship Olathe is joining us. So Fellowship Olathe, we're glad you're joining us this morning. We had a great time last Sunday night as we uh, ordained uh, Pastor Travis to gospel ministry and excited about him partnering up with Pastor Jeremy and all that God is doing there. We, we really packed that room out and just gave us a foretaste of what God is going to do. Great days are ahead at Fellowship Olathe. And if you've not ever had a chance to go out there and worship, uh, I would encourage you to pick a Sunday, go out there and encourage Pastor Jeremy uh, and encourage Pastor Travis and, and what God is doing there. They also have a lot of outreach events that are going to be coming up this, this spring, and you may want to go out there and help them serve. But it's an exciting time to be a part of God's work. Well, as we jump in here at chapter 40, let, let's just read this text as we begin. Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then it came about, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And just stop right there, just briefly, the the cupbearer, the baker, these were incredibly significant positions in uh, in that kingdom. Probably two of the most powerful civil servants to uh, Pharaoh, to the king, were these two individuals. Because every king, uh, Pharaoh, lived in this constant awareness that somebody's out there trying to take me out. There's a coup that's being trying to, to overtake me. And so uh, one of the easiest ways to take a king out or Pharaoh out was to poison his food. So you had these cupbearers and you had these bakers that their job was to protect the king. And they kind of came confidants to, to Pharaoh and so close personal servants to him. And apparently there's been some plot against Pharaoh's life, king's life, and these guys have been implicated uh, they're not sure what, to what measure, but the king's mad at them. And so he throws them in prison with Joseph. So we pick up in verse 3. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each with its own in- interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in the master's house, Why are you, your faces so sad? And then they said to him, We've had a dream. There's no one to interpret it. And then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. 
Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even there I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief uh, baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would make it alive to us. God, we ask not you to not bless the speaker, but your word. God, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of anything that you would have to say here, that I would in any way muddy the water. But we pray, God, that you would speak very plainly and very simply to us so that we can take the principles of this passage and apply them to our lives, Lord, that we might look more like you. God, that is our desire by means of your word that today we would leave this place changed because we met with you and your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Certainly as we, we look at Joseph's life, his life is a bit of a roller coaster. He starts out really well, kind of a spoiled, pampered son with a nice coat and big dreams of all that God is going to do in his life. Suddenly the story takes a downward turn. His brothers throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. He finds himself in Potiphar's house, and then suddenly the story begins to take a bit of an upward turn as he gains favor in Potiphar's house, and he's put in charge of everything that he has, and his career seems to be on an upward trajectory, and things seem to be going well. But then it takes another downward uh, depth, uh, uh, downward descent, whatever you want to call it. He goes down. And he goes down and he's put in prison. Potiphar's wife accuses him of these things. He's done nothing wrong. And all of a sudden he finds himself in jail. I mean, every time things start to be looking up, it just blows up in his face. It appears sometimes the more he clings to God, the more things go downward. And yet despite all this, as you study Joseph's life, he stays true. The guy stays faithful despite the circumstances. He may not enjoy them. He may not like them, but you see very clearly he doesn't grow bitter against God. He doesn't grow resentful. In fact, he leads a more excellent life. Not only does he lead an excellent life, but he, he becomes a, a servant with, with a heart of compassion and kindness. 
And we're kind of left to wonder, how in the world is this possible? Because quite honestly, I, I know of believers who were leading a faithful life, walking faithfully with the, with the Lord, and all of a sudden the bottom dropped out of no real act of their own, but just things took a downward turn, and they bailed out on God. Because God didn't behave like they wanted him to. And they got mad at God, and they, and they went AWOL. And in fact, one of the things as I study this, and I ask myself, would I have stayed faithful? I mean, if I were in these circumstances, and I had been imprisoned for something that I didn't do because I was faithful to God, would I have remained faithful to him? Would I have led a, led a more excellent life? Would, would I have had a heart of service and compassion? And this is important for us to, to see what, what in the world made Joseph stay so faithful to God in the midst of all this. Because what we see here, I, I don't think that this is the exception. I think what Joseph experiences is the normative Christian life. Maybe we're not put in prison. Maybe we're not falsely accused in this way. But all of us at some point or another are going to have circumstances in our life where we're walking faithfully with the Lord and the bottom just seems to fall out. And we're kind of left in the dark just clinging to God wondering, are you even here? God, are you even real? Have you forgotten me? And so what happened here with Joseph? It happened to Jesus. And sooner or later, if it's not already happened to you, or maybe you're going through it right now, but if it's not already happened, rest assured, if you know Christ, it's probably going to happen sooner or later. And what we need to know is what got Joseph through, because it's going to be critical to helping us make it through. And there's a couple of things that I think we see, and most of what I'm going to share with you this morning is just a blinding flash of the obvious. I mean, these things, most of these narratives, they really need very little interpretation. In fact, you got to work to mess up these passages as a pastor, all right? So that's the big burden on me. Like, if you mess this up, you're a knucklehead, all right? So there's some clear truths here that I think we're intended to see. Number one is what, what got Joseph through. Primarily, it was an... It was a recognition of the presence of God. We've already talked about this, but Joseph is growing this deep conviction that no matter what happens, God is with me. And it starts, in, in, in fact, in chapter 39, if you want to look back in verses 20 and 21. And so Joseph's master took him and put him in, into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. And extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And verse 22, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. So that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. There's kind of this growing conviction. You see it run throughout the Joseph narrative that Joseph has this recognition. He may not like the circumstances. He may not like what's going on. But he understands God is there. In fact, when, when Potiphar's wife comes to him and, and he's put in that awkward situation, he tells Potiphar's wife, I can't do this. I can't sin against my master. But more than that, as we looked at last week, I can't sin against who? God. 
He's not given up on acknowledgement. God's here. Even if it's a difficult situation, God is there. And in this chapter, when the cupbearer and the baker come to Joseph with their dreams, and they say, we've had these dreams, but we've got no one to interpret it, Joseph responds to them by saying, do not interpretations belong to who? To God. Joseph has not given up on a belief in God. He believes that God is very much there. And in fact, next week, as we look at chapter 41, Pharaoh is, is going to have his dream, and he'll bring it to Joseph, and he'll say to Joseph, can you interpret this? And Joseph will say to Pharaoh, I can't interpret it, but God can. Throughout all of this, it, it just appears that no matter how dark the circumstances become in Joseph's life, no, no matter how hopeless the situation, there's this deep conviction within Joseph that God is still here, that God hasn't forgotten me, and that God is with me. And none of us would have blamed Joseph. If, if there was anybody who had a right to get mad at God, it was Joseph. I mean, it, everything he experiences is primarily connected to his faithfulness to God. No matter how much he clings to God, it seems like the circumstances just get lower and lower. And yet there's a growing conviction in Joseph that God has not forgotten about me. Not even for a moment. And and it's interesting because as we read these passages... We see God's hand all over it, don't we? I mean, we read it and we see, wow, you can see how God is maneuvering that circumstance and this circumstances. But we know that because we've read the end of the story. But Joseph doesn't know that. Joseph is completely in the dark. He has no clue. And that's the thing about God. Rarely does God sit down with us. In the midst of trials and the storms of life, rarely does God sit down with us and say, all right, let me just tell you what's going on here so you don't get too frustrated. Here's what I'm doing. That's not the way God works, is it? We just find ourselves in these crazy situations that seem somewhat chaotic and out of control, and God says, listen, you're just going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust that, that, that I see a bigger picture that you don't see. And you're just going to have to simply rest in the knowledge that I am with you. And the knowledge that Christ is with us enables us to stand up underneath the trials. And not just to trust that God is with us, but to worship him. I mean, isn't this, isn't this really what separates us from the unbelieving world? It's not like we as Christians don't have trials. We as Christians, we still get cancer diagnoses. It's not like you become a Christian and no more trials. We, we have hardship just like the rest of the world. But what makes the difference is we have a knowledge that God is with us in the midst of the storm, in the midst of whatever we face. And as Scripture says, we know whom we have believed and we're persuaded that he's able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. And it's the presence of God in our life that makes all the difference. And and I don't want you to misunderstand this. Joseph is not fatalistic. Joseph is, in in other words, Joseph is not enjoying the trial. In fact, Joseph wants out of the dungeon. That's what he tells the cupbearer. Hey, I made this prophecy. It's going to come true. When it comes true, remember me and get me out of here. I don't want to be here. It's okay to not be where you are. 
It's okay to be in a situation or a circumstance today where you say, I really would rather not be going through this. But even if you are there, and even if you don't know why, the true believer says, God, I trust you, and I will praise you. And and that would be my question for you this morning. Are, are Are you able today, despite your circumstances, to say, God, I thank you where I'm at today, and I will praise you even if you never tell me why. Now, it's okay to ask God why. God's big enough to handle our questions, amen? As, as James says, you know, James in James chapter one says, but if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect anything from God. Being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. In summary, what James is saying is it's okay to ask God for wisdom and understanding, but watch your tone. You know what I mean? You still have to remember that he is God, and you're not. And he sees a bigger picture, so it's okay to ask God. And sometimes he may let you in, but more often than not, I don't think he does. And you have to be willing to say, God, I don't know what you're doing. And I don't know where this thing is going. But it's enough to know that you're with me. That's what makes the difference. Is that no matter what we go through, we know that God is with us. The second thing I think we see that gets Joseph through is not just an understanding that God is with me, but but also an understanding that there's a purpose in this. That, that whatever Joseph faces, whatever he goes through, there's a purpose behind it. God has made some promises to Joseph. They, they came to him in dreams, and obviously these dreams were from God because the dreams come to fruition. But God has made some promises to Joseph that of all the things that he wants to do in his life, your, your family's going to bow down to you. But everything, almost from the moment after Joseph has those dreams, everything that occurs after that seems to be running contrary to the fulfillment of those purposes. But as I said earlier, what do we know? It all looks like, in Joseph's eyes, what he sees in front of him, it looks like everything is running contrary to him being exalted. But we know that God is up to something bigger, that God is doing something. As, as I read this, I couldn't help but almost try to talk to Joseph where you're saying, Joseph, hang in there. It's going to get better. It, listen, Joseph, God is up to something. He's doing big, I have big things. You're going to be used by God for the salvation of all of God's people. You're going to be used by God for the salvation of the world. Just hang in there. But Joseph... Joseph doesn't see it. But everything, every aspect of what God is doing in Joseph's life, it's not accidental, it's not incidental, it's purposeful. Everything that Joseph is enduring in these situations is preparation for the position that God has for him. God is molding Joseph so that when Joseph's hour arrives, he will be exactly the man that God needs him to be in that hour. 
See, Joseph, God is going to change his circumstances. Joseph will become prime minister of Egypt. But changing Joseph's circumstances, that's no problem for God. God could have made Joseph, at 17, if God wanted to, God could have made him prime minister over all of Egypt. But if God had made him prime minister over Egypt at the age of 17, he would have never been ready for that position. The problem is not Joseph's circumstances. The problem is Joseph. We, we got to change not just his circumstances. We got to change Joseph. It's a good reminder that God is more concerned with who we are than what we do. God is more concerned with your character than your vocation. But we get it the other way around, don't we? We, we oftentimes, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but we're more concerned with our circumstances and our job and our vocation than our character. God's primary concern is developing us into men and women that he can use regardless of where he places us. And so God is, is molding Joseph. He's shaping him. You know, these chapters that we look at here, chapters 37 through chapter 40, we read, oftentimes we read these narratives and we think, well, you know, maybe a couple of years, a few months, whatever. This is 10 years. Um, you know, think back 10 years ago when you were alive. You'd be, Probably a lot of changes have taken place. But we're talking about Joseph from ages 17 to 27. All of us, think about the changes that God made in your life from the age of 17 to 27. For most people, that's a pretty transformative period of life, isn't it? It's going to be a majorly transformative period in, in, in Joseph's life. God is going to mold him. When we meet Joseph at age 17 in chapter 37, it's obvious that Joseph is incredibly gifted. He's a little obnoxious, but he's gifted, incredibly gifted. He's got a personality that everybody loves. He's a, he's a good administrator. He's got all kinds of giftedness, but guess what he lacks? He lacks character. Another good reminder that in service to God, Giftedness is not nearly important as character. We've all seen individuals that their giftedness took them to places that their character couldn't sustain them. And again, God is molding Joseph's character. Now, what are the qualities, if we're looking at Joseph's life, what are some of the qualities that God is developing in him? Just a few that I listed out here. The, the, the number one quality that I saw God developing within Joseph is the quality of humility. Humility. You've heard me say this before, but my definition of humility, humility is being so confident of who you are in Christ that you're able to focus on others rather than yourself. Humility is not a lack of confidence. No, it's rooted in, in the fact that I'm so confident and secure in my relationship with the Lord that I don't ha it doesn't have to be about me anymore. I don't have to be the center of attention that my life now becomes about service to other individuals. Now, now, when you think of Joseph's life and the development of humility, when we met Joseph in chapter seven, uh, 37, when he's 17 years old, life is all about Joseph. And if we're honest with ourselves, probably all of us at age 17, our life was all about us. 
You remember, this is the guy who, uh, I got great dreams, got a nice coat, and all y'all are going to bow down to me. It's going to be great. He didn't care how anybody else felt. It was all about this spoiled, pampered little boy. Everything was about him. But God is molding him into a humble servant. We see it in in verse 7 of chapter 40 here. uh, When the cupbearer and the baker come to Joseph, Joseph sees them in the morning. We've all been in the workplace and you've seen somebody come in and it's obvious that something is right. Well, he sees the, that alone is a big change in Joseph's life. He's more interested in other people than he is himself. So he's looking, he's got all these people under his care and his charge, and kind of a servant's heart is being developed in Joseph so that when he sees the world and he walks into a room, he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about who can I help? And he sees these individuals, he sees them down, what's wrong? And they say to him, we've had these dreams, but we got nobody to interpret it. Now, even that, if I had been Joseph, I'd have said, dreams? Are you kidding me? Listen, I had some dreams, and look where it got me. Forget your dreams. That's what I would have said. But Joseph, he looks at these guys and says, do not interpretations belong to God? Now, this is a radical shift. See, see, Joseph still understands that God has gifted him with the ability to interpret dreams. Only two individuals in the Old Testament really have the ability to interpret dreams. That's Joseph and Daniel. But he recognizes God has gifted me with the ability to interpret dreams. But the transformation that's occurred is that Joseph begins to understand that, that this giftedness to interpret dreams is not primarily for my own benefit. See, previously I've got these great dreams and it's all about Joseph. Now I've got this giftedness to interpret dreams. But it's not a gift given for my benefit. It's a gift that God has given to me to serve other people. See, there's a radical change in Joseph's mindset. At 17, he was a gifted young man who wants to be a leader. At 27 years of age, he's a gifted young man who wants to be a servant. God is changing him. And this quality of service is a quality that God is developing into all of us. You know, we, we're, there's a buzz, you know, all today it's about leadership development. Everything you hear organizationally, out there in the business world, you even hear it in the church, it's the leadership development, it's the leadership pipeline, it's all about developing leaders. Listen to me this morning. God is not interested in developing leaders, he's interested in developing servants. And then you, you just kind of let the leadership ch- chips fall where they may. God will lift up leaders when he wants them to lead. But listen, every great leader in God's kingdom must first begin as a servant. I think the idea is, Joseph, if you can be a good servant in Potiphar's house, and if you can be a good servant in the jailhouse, then maybe we'll talk about Pharaoh's house. But let's see if you can serve me over here, even when you don't get anything in return. You know, I, um, every time I see something like this, I think of Josh, my, my favorite illustration story is Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, um, he graduated Wheaton, and he's this great youth evangelist. Everybody's asking him to speak all over the place, and he's becoming very well-known, very popular, this great gifted speaker. And Bill Bright calls him, Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ. He's got this camp out in Arrowhead Springs in California. He calls Josh McDowell, says, hey, I need you to come out here. I want you to teach the Book of Romans to a group of college students during the summer, and then they'll take that knowledge. 
knowledge back to their, their college campuses, and they'll make disciples on those college campuses. And, and Josh McDowell said, are you kidding me? California in the summer teaching Roman. Sign me up. I'm there. So he goes out to Arrowhead Springs, and he arrives. And little did he know that Arrowhead Springs, Campus Crusade, they were a little struggling a little bit financially during that time. And so uh, Bill Bright had to make some cuts. And and he had to cut, like, his facilities team. And so he goes to Josh, and he says, Hey, Josh, I, I'm going to need you to help out with facilities this summer, too. In addition to your teaching responsibilities, do you mind helping me? And Josh said, Sure, you know, I'll help you. What do you need? Well, just kind of uh, whatever arises, we're just all kind of all hands on deck. We're just going to help out wherever we can. Just said, Sure, sign me up. You know what the number one problem they had that summer at Arrowhead Springs? The toilets kept backing up. And so Josh, he, he said, almost not a day went by that he didn't have to go unclog a college student's toilet. In fact, it got so bad they nicknamed him Captain Commode. And you can just imagine, here he is, this great youth evangelist, and I'm unclogging toilets. The summer went on. He just kind of got mad. Nearing the end, they were going to have this evangelism conference there at the, at the Arrowhead Springs, the camp, and, and Billy Graham was going to be there, and Louis Palou was going to be there, and Bill Bright had told Josh, hey, you're going to get to sit at the head table. You're going to get to rub shoulders with, with Billy Graham. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. And he was so looking forward to The night came. He's getting all dressed up, putting his suit on. He gets a call from Bill Bright, and Bill Bright says, hey, Josh, I hate to tell you this, but we've just put new asphalt down in the parking lot, and somebody tracked fresh tar in on the red carpet in the main chapel area. And I was wondering if you could head over, if you could try to somehow get that cleaned up before people start coming in. So Josh went over there, put his coveralls on, went over to the chapel. He started scrubbing the floor, and he said, the more I scrub, the madder I got. They have no idea who I am. This is, ridiculous. This is a waste of my gifts. By the time he had finished, dinner was over, conference was started. He said, I'm not even going. I forget it. I'm done. Tomorrow morning, I'm quitting. He goes back to his room. And like all good Christians, before he quits, he says, well, I better read my Bible. And he opened his Bible, and guess what passage he opened to? John 13. And there he read about Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, getting down on his feet and washing the disciples' feet. And Josh said, if Jesus can wash men's feet, then I can scrub their floors and unclog their toilets. And he said, in that moment, I realized I was exactly where God wanted me to be. You know what Josh learned? You know what Joseph learned? It's called the Jesus pattern. That in God's kingdom, the way up is down. The way to greatness is through service and self-sacrifice. And then you let the chips, the leadership chips, fall where they may. God is developing him into a servant. Not only that, but God's developing his patience. God is developing him in the area of patience. So critical to our world. You, you, you know how many times in Scripture the phrase, wait upon the Lord, occurs? You know how many times it occurs? Neither do I. <laughs> but it's a lot, all right? In all honesty, I was digging in the concordance and I got impatient and just said it's a lot, all right? 
None of us, we don't like to wait on anything, do we? But do you know one of the most critical qualities of the believer is the ability to wait on God and trust his timing. God rarely ever works on your time frame or my time frame. And God has got to develop in Joseph patience and discipline because it's going to be needed, isn't it? Because later on, when he's prime minister over Egypt, there's going to be seven years of famine, and he's going to have to store up some food, and he's going to have to be incredibly patient. And so God puts him in positions where you're, going to, you're just going to have to trust me. In fact, even at the end of this chapter, the part that irritates me the most is the cupbearer forgets him. It says it twice. He did not remember him, and he forgot him. It's just telling us that the cupbearer was incredibly callous. He just blows off Joseph. But even in that little thing right there that would have irritated me, I just helped the guy out and he forgot me. I could have gotten out of this deal and he forgets me. But even that, if if the cupbearer had remembered uh, Joseph at that time and told Pharaoh, there's a good chance that Pharaoh at that moment, he's got no interest in Joseph because he's got no need for Joseph. And so he could have just forgotten about it. Or maybe Joseph does get out and who knows where he goes. But in the providence of God, God causes that cupbearer to remember at just the right time when Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret. And all of a sudden, a guy like Joseph who can interpret dreams becomes very handy. And guess what God is teaching Joseph again? My timing's perfect, Joseph. It will rarely occur when you want it to occur, but it will occur when I want it to occur. And it's perfect. Developing patience. He's also developing boldness. You know, the boldness, is, it, it comes in the, the interpretation of these two dreams with the baker and the cupbearer. Uh, they have these two dreams. You, you remember the cupbearer? Uh, tell me my dream, your dream. Here, here's the interpretation. It's going to go really well for you. You're going to be restored to your position. And, the, and the, the baker says, hey, give me some of that. Let me hear. Uh, lay it on me. What's my interpretation? And can you just imagine? You know, yeah, here's yours. Birds are going to eat your flesh. How about that? That sounds good. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, Lord, can I have another interpretation? You got something else for me? It's not fun to tell people the truth sometimes. But there's an understanding in Joseph that I don't get to change the message. This is what God gave me. This is, this is God's word. And I may not, I'm not going to be mean about it, but I got to tell him the truth. And God is developing in Joseph, listen, you got to be bold and you got to be willing to speak my truth even when people don't like it very much. You know, all the time you ask people, if you were to die, where would you go, where would you be eternally? Well, I would go to heaven. Why, Why do you think you'd go to heaven? Because I'm a really good person, because I joined a church. And guess what? we got to be willing to look them in the eyes and say, listen, on the basis of your good works, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to hell, and that's not my word, that's God's word. The wages of sin is death. Even your righteous works are like filthy rags in the presence of God. you got no hope in you. But the good news is God provided his son Jesus who died on the cross for your sins so that through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven, and you can go to heaven, but you can't get there on your good works. And we got to be willing to be bold and tell people the truth, even when they may not like it. And God is developing that quality in Joseph's life. 
And so the more you look into this, and there's other qualities, but the more you look into this, you see that everything that God is doing in Joseph's life, it's purposeful. It's not incident. It looks in Joseph's life like it's just a bunch of chaotic series of events, but everything is happening according to God's purposes, and all of it is preparation for the moment and the hour that God has coming for Joseph. It's kind of like that, the really uh, great theological movie, Karate Kid. You remember that? Great deep theology there. But you remember old Daniel LaRusso, he wants to win the tournament. And he asked Mr. Miyagi, will you train me? I, I, I need your help. I want to win the tournament. Yeah, I'll train you. But you got to do, do everything I say. All right, I'll do whatever you say. All right, wash the car. Wax the car. Sand the floor. Paint the fence. Paint the house. You remember old Danny LaRusso? I'm done with this. I ain't nobody's slave. I signed up to win a tournament, and this guy just made me his slave and his painter. I'm out. I'm done. And you remember finally Mr. Miyagi goes, come on over here. Show me. Wax the floor. You know. And he blocks a kick, you know. Show me paint the fence. You know. And he gets it. And it's all going to come in handy, isn't it? But in the midst of all of it, Joseph didn't see it. Daniel didn't see it. The thing about God is he's not Mr. Miyagi. He doesn't sit down with us, does he? He just says, you're going to have to trust me. I'm doing something that's bigger than you. And I've not forgotten you. I'm with you. I remember you. In fact, the, the, the phrase remember me is a phrase in this chapter that just keeps popping up, doesn't it? And if you know that phrase, it, it reminds you of, an, of another time when we hear that phrase in the New Testament, remember me. You remember when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's two criminals to his right and his left. And you remember one of those criminals, the other guy's mocking Jesus and this one criminal says, do you not fear God? What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. He says, we're getting what we justly deserve. That thief realizes he's a sinner. But this man has done nothing wrong. He understands that Jesus is perfect. And then he says to Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, he recognizes that Jesus is a king. It's amazing that thief was the greatest theologian of his day. He understood eschatology. He understood Christology. He understood our martyology, the study of sin. Greatest theologian. Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? He turns thieves into theologians. But you remember, in light of who he is and in light of who Jesus is, you remember what does he say to Jesus? Jesus, would you remember me? Jesus, I, I just want to sit at the back of the bus. I, I don't care. I, I just, it's not like I'm asking for a mansion. I just want to know that when you enter into your kingdom, you'll remember. And what does Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, here in this story, it's kind of the other way around, isn't it? 
Joseph is the beloved son. He's the prophet. He's the one who's being unjustly imprisoned. And it's Joseph who looks at this cupbearer and says, would you remember me? And the cupbearer has every reason to remember Joseph because part of the reason he gets out is because of Joseph. But the cupbearer forgets him. With Jesus, it's the criminal asking Jesus to remember him. And Jesus has no reason to remember the criminal. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this guy's nothing but a thief. And yet Jesus remembers him. And he remembers us, doesn't he? Pray that we would always give thanks to the Savior who always, always remembers his children. He's not forgotten you. You know, there's a lady by the name of Sevilla Martin. She wrote several hymns, several poems. Her and her husband, early 1905, somewhere around there, they had developed a friendship with another couple. uh, And the the couple that they had developed a friendship with, they they had gone through a lot of struggles in their life. The husband was in a wheelchair, um, had to wheel himself everywhere he went. And the wife had been bedridden for about 20 years. But they developed a friendship with them because they loved being around this couple. Despite their circumstances, they were some of the most joyful people they had ever met. And on one occasion, Sevilla went to visit the wife who was bedridden and sit with her for a couple of hours while the husband was out. And she was sitting at her bedside and she looked at this woman who was bedridden. She said, can I just ask you, how in the world do you stay so incredibly joyful? And this woman lying in her bed looked back at her and with a smile said these words, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. And Sevilla Martin went back home and in the quietness of her room she wrote these words, why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? A constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word, tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sign, when hope within me dies. Anybody there today? Boy, you're on the verge of throwing in the towel. No matter how much you've been faithful to God, it just seems like you're on a downward spiral. I draw the closer to him from care he sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're going through, but God does. And if he cares about the sparrows that fall from the sky, and if he cares about the lilies of the field, I can guarantee you today he cares about you. And knowing that he's watching us gives us the ability to sing that chorus, doesn't it? You think we can sing it here at the end? You think we can do it? I'm going to do my best.
I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Father, we thank you this morning that you have never forgotten us, not even for one moment. And God, I pray that your presence would encourage those who are in a place of despair today. Maybe they're watching online. Maybe they're in this room. Maybe they're at Fellowship Olathe. Maybe they're in the venue service. And right now, boy, they are at the end of their rope. Emotionally, spiritually, and physically, they're not sure they can take much more. God, I pray that by means of your spirit and your word today, you would remind them that they are not alone. You are with them. You have not forgotten them. And they might not fully in this world ever know why. But I pray that your presence would enable them to say, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. We know your eye is on the sparrow. You're watching over us. God, for those of who are watching online or in this room that don't know you, and they're in a place of despair, God, I pray that they would know today that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for their sins so that, that their, their sins could be forgiven, so that they could be redeemed from the bondage of sin but also, and just as importantly, so that they could have a relationship with you. So that they, as they go through the storms that inevitably come in this world, they would know that they have a Savior who's with them and will not leave them. And ultimately, we know that suffering for the true believer, it's temporary. Our light and momentary affliction is achieving us an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. We know there's a day coming. I pray if there's somebody who doesn't know you, they would trust in you today that they'd be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son and they would enjoy a relationship with the God who will never leave them, never forsake them, and one day will lead them home. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray this in Christ's name.